Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the Actus podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation integrity profession. The Actus podcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. Today, Wednesday, March 31st, marks our 176th program. Today's featured Actus solution, which you can see on your screen there, is the live virtual CDI bootcamp. The live virtual CDI bootcamp is Actus's premier training for CDI specialists, trusted by hundreds of CDI specialists as the go-to source for CDI education. This course defines the role of CDI specialists and provides comprehensive training on all their responsibilities. We walk you through the MDCs, teach about querying, the MSDRG methodology, uh, the cool thing about this class, as I've been saying for the last few shows, is that it's taught live, but in a convenient virtual setting. So you get the small, same small class and personal touch and interaction we provide in the classroom from the convenience and safety of your own home. So check out the live virtual CDI bootcamp. So my name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists, and I'm your host for today's program. Outpatient CDI payer perspective. Um, I'm joined by my familiar co-host at the left, Don Valdez. Don is a clinical documentation integrity specialist for us here at HC Pro and Actus in Middleton. By way of background, Don serves as our full-time instructor for the CDI boot camps and a subject matter expert for us here at Actus. She has more than 20 years experience in the healthcare industry, including ICU nursing, legal nurse consulting, we were just talking about that a little bit, and nurse management. So welcome to the program, Dawn. Thank you, Brian. It's always good to be here. All right. And next, we also have our special guest today, Susan Richards. Uh, Susan served as the Director of Clinical Documentation for Humana's Senior-Focused Primary Care Clinics from 2020 through 2021. Prior to this role, she served as manager of risk adjustment from 2018 to 2020, overseeing the day-to-day -day operations for Medicare risk adjustment or MRA provider education and record retrieval in the Mid-Atlantic region. As the region's clinical guidance manager from 2014 to 2017, she led the MRA provider education team. Uh, a little bit more about her background, she's also served as Specialized Services Coding Operations Manager for Duke University Health Systems, and I want to welcome her to the show. So welcome, Susan. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's start with a poll question related to today's topic, as we always do. I'm going to go ahead and launch this. Um, this should yield some interesting results. Today we're asking you, how would you describe your organization's relationships with its payers? Payer or payers? Uh, I, I realize if you have more than one payer, this may vary. So this is the best we can do with the, the poll options we've got here. So would you describe them as poor or perhaps even adversarial? Uh, neutral or mixed? Good? Don't know or not applicable. I know not everyone has direct dealings with their payers, so they may not know. Or other. And as always, I'd love to see your responses, so send those in using the chat feature in the uh, audience tool here. 
So once again, how would you describe your organization's relationship with its payer or payers? Your options are poor slash adversarial, uh, neutral or mixed, good, don't know, not applicable, or other. Okay, we've got, got about 75% of our audience that have voted, so I'm going to go ahead and close this out. feeling pretty good about this poll, and we will come back to the results, as we always do, uh, in just a few minutes. All right, as I mentioned, Susan Richards is uh, today's special guest. Susan, welcome to the show. Thanks for being a part of the Actus podcast for the first time. Um, I have to say, I've, I've had a, a number of guests on this show of all types and stripes, physicians, consultants, CDI professionals. Uh, we had a great show last week with Brian Simpson, who was a registered respiratory therapist. Um, I can't say, though, I've had the perspective of a payer insurer insider on the air. Um, you know, as I mentioned at the outset, Susan, until very recently, you were working for Humana. So I thought I would be beneficial for all of our listeners today that you could take a few minutes to kind of describe your role with that organization and uh, that your, your relationship in general with outpatient CDI. Yeah, great question. Thanks, Brian. Uh, so uh, I spent a lot of time uh, at Humana, about six years, and most of those years were on what we would call the plan side in Medicare risk adjustment. And Medicare risk adjustment very often focuses on outpatient uh, visits because uh, patients and members who have been to the hospital have generally had their records reviewed uh, at the very least by a coder and have been coded by a coding specialist and very often have also had a clinical chart review from a CDI specialist. And so uh, really the risk adjustment side of the plan is really looking at those outpatient uh, patients that have not actually been involved in an inpatient setting, uh, because very often at that time, you are really relying on the provider to document and code uh, as accurately as possible. So uh, one of the primary things that I did with the plan side was to really uh, try to engage providers in allowing for retrospective retrieval uh, so that uh, insurance companies have larger resources to be able to review uh, a much larger volume of outpatient documentation for misdiagnoses that might be embedded in the record but have never uh, been on a claim. So that was one aspect of, of the work that, that I did for the plan. Uh, and then additionally, uh, we had an education team that would work uh, with our provider partners to strategize on coding and documentation best practices. Uh, and again, because CDI is really fairly robust in an inpatient setting, the focus is more on outpatient coding and documentation. Uh, when I went to Duke, uh, what really struck me when I went over there as a coding operations manager is that there's a lot of collaboration at higher levels on coding and documentation best practices, but because uh, mo many organizations have uh, policies and compliance practices that that do not have outside organizations providing education and, and information to their providers and, and boots on the ground. So, so there's sometimes there's a disconnect between uh, what's happening in the boardrooms or during these meetings with, with the teams that I was involved with and then actually being on the ground. 
Uh, one of the trends that I've been seeing, and I'm sure other folks have seen this as well, is that as uh, time has progressed, uh, insurance plans are entering into the provider market, and Humana was no exception. Uh, they have uh, senior-focused primary care organizations throughout the country. And uh, in my last role at Humana, I was the director of clinical documentation uh, for Humana for their senior-focused provider organizations. And so that was really an opportunity to experience uh, being in clinical documentation in the outpatient setting and working in a payer agnostic environment with different plans to to try to implement uh, and shift from a retrospective practice to more of a prospective and even a concurrent focus on documentation. Mm. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, that's a lot. Now you mentioned provider. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you mentioned provider coding. So. What I want to know from the payer's perspective is what are the major challenges that you see to success for a CDI in the outpatient setting? You know, there's so many that are just beginning, and I've heard from a lot of our listeners, you know, we just don't know where to start. But what are the roadblocks from that payer perspective? Is it provider self-coding? Is it technology, uh, lack of processes, or, you know, anything you can offer there would be much appreciated. Or all of those for sure. Okay. I think that the single single biggest challenge is the volume, is trying to come up with a process that is going to the, allow uh, an outpatient CDI person to successfully navigate the volume and target uh, the type of encounters or the providers that are going to benefit the most from the, the CDI work. Uh, I think also, uh, besides the sheer volume of what we're seeing in outpatient, is also the lack of concurrent time frame with which to query a provider. Uh, there's a lot of information that can be provided from the plans, you know, with suspecting and different types of information, but really it's, it can be so much data. Uh, and a patient is in the office for, you know, a very short period of time, you know, usually 15 minutes, certainly very rarely an hour. I mean, if that, so mm -hmm. the time frame with which to uh, have a communication with a provider, uh, you know, is, you know, coming up with that process is, is, is a big challenge. And then another thing that is also difficult is the, you know, is the, is is it payer agnostic are you working on you know you have lots of different sources of data potentially from all different types of payer trying to figure out how you're going to work in that and then sometimes uh, value-based contracts aren't really translated to providers they might not be uh incentivized and or you know paid in any way based on a value-based care uh contract and so you know, and or the volume of patients that are participating in value-based contracts may be pretty small. And so engaging that provider in a way that they can see what's in it for them can also be a challenge. I mean, it's there's a lot of uh, things to tackle <laughs> mm -hmm. in the outpatient. There really is. And this is a really big subject. So all that information is helpful. And I'm sure our listeners who work in that uh, field now understand what you're saying about the volume, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. that, that's why they focus on those problem lists and right and the prospective reviews, you know, so mm -hmm. it, it is it is a streamlined process. And 
just because that volume, I mean, they're slated every five minutes with the patient, it seems like these days. Yep. If anyone out there has figured out all the solutions to these problems, let me know. We'd love to have you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we were just Well, the, the other thing, too, that, that I would say is that with the volume is that, you know, some of the sicker patients, you know, the top 20% of the patients are using and 80% of the outpatient resources are responsible for 80% of the outpatient right. spend. And so, you know, trying to slate a patient like that into a regular time slot can be really difficult to come up with a process that that provider is actually going to be able to address the multitude of problems that that particular patient might have, especially some of those patients that have a, a complex patient panel in the outpatient setting. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of patients that have a lot of comorbid conditions these days, so I'm mm -hmm. sure that's that's a big challenge. You're right. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So, Susan, one of the things we were chatting about in the pre-show call a little bit is the, um, you know, particularly in the outpatient setting is the this, this sort of closer alignment between, you know, Medicare Advantage organizations, payers, and, and hospitals themselves and hospital organizations. You know, as we know from the inpatient setting, and we'll see how our poll results turn out here in a few minutes, you know, these are... These can be adversarial, sometimes at best lukewarm uh, in the inpatient setting. Um, but what, what's interesting, I find, um, with outpatient is when, you know, when, when the payer is submitting these risk-adjusted diagnoses to Medicare, it would seem to me that these two entities should be working in concert, um, you know, the hospital and the payer. I'm not saying that's always the case, but... Um, Maybe you could talk a little bit about this relationship and, and sort of how it should function ideally in a best case scenario. Sure. And I'm going to talk really high level because I can definitely say that if if there are other parts of, uh, of the relationship that are not functioning, it can definitely impact the Medicare Advantage part of the relationship as well. Mm -hmm. uh, it's typically not you know it, and also when folks are negotiating contracts between a payer and a provider sometimes communication stops <laughs> during that time while things are being negotiated out you know in different areas and things like that so just how the overall organizations interact with each other on a regular basis across all of the organizations uh, you know lines of business and, and services are are important in the relationship but the goal of Medicare Advantage and value-based care is really the concept of, of shared savings, which is that uh, you're kind of paid in an upfront or a capitated way, uh, you know, ultimately in that you are, you know, the, the insurance plan is definitely paid that way. They are paid in a capitated manner. So, uh, and it's based on the several different factors, but one of the biggest factors is the, the disease burden of that patient panel. So if you have a complex patient panel, uh, more money is set aside to take care of that patient. And then during the course of the year, the the if the patient has a health crisis or something happens with that patient the money that the insurance plan is given is just for that patient and they can lose money or they can if the patient is doing really well and, and is taking care of themselves uh and doesn't have any health crisis then the provide the insurance plan uh tends to they don't lose money on that patient particularly 
Medicare does require that 85 cents of every dollar is spent on patient care. So there's a limit of how much money a Medicare Advantage plan can make on a patient per, per se. And so if they end up with more money at the end of the year, what they do typically is put that into uh, patient um, care programs or transportation or meals on wheels, different things like that because of the mandates and which then allows them to have more patients. And so there is a financial benefit to that from a from an insurance plan point of view in terms of, of saving money. Uh, and so what they work with on the providers is they try to get the providers to also kind of do the shared savings. And so if, if you know, at the end of the money, there's money left over, the plan would get part of it and the provider would get part of it. And so everybody's kind of working in concert to uh, try to take care of the patient. And it's kind of done at the beginning where problems arise with providers and payers, at least in my experience, is that at the afterwards, when you get a denial or a claim or, you know, people start arguing back and forth on what happened and whether it was medical necessity and things like that, that's where things kind of go bad. And the whole idea of, you know, shared savings is that you're working on it up front and it's more prospective and everybody's kind of working together. So that's kind of the idealistic way of looking at it and that that providers are given rewards also uh, based on quality of care which are either evidence-based medicine practices or preventative screenings that help to kind of catch things early if somebody doesn't have something or help to manage manage patients so that they don't end up in a health crisis so mm. so i mean that's that's the idealistic way of looking at it yeah Thanks. So it, it does give you hope for the future, too, that maybe the, we will start seeing a, a better collaborative process between the payer and the hospital. Um, so good stuff. Yeah. And the other thing, too, as I'm listening to everything you're saying, it's so interesting because, you know, the patient is in this mix when you get into the value-based programs, because if they're non-compliant, that's a real problem for the, the provider and the payer, you know, with especially with the contracts. So, that plays into it, but the other thing that plays into it as well are, you mentioned denials, claim disputes, medical necessity. So from that payer perspective, for the outpatient world, what are those current compliance risks that that you can talk about to educate our, our listeners on that? Like, what do you see one thing being denied more than another? What kind of problems do you see on that, on the backside? Well, so from a Medicare Advantage point of view, the payment is based on, um, is mostly based on diagnosis codes in terms of uh, what is actually wrong with the patient. So from a compliance point of view, and I actually do think that this is something in a way that is also better for the patient. Uh, and I'll use an example of something like um morbid obesity because that's something that patients can understand. They have more of a chance and kind of a more of a buy-in of understanding a mm -hmm. diagnosis of morbid obesity or at least looking up a diagnosis that they have versus a type of procedure. And so I think patients, you know, we've all heard that the patients that do not want to have morbid obesity on their chart and so <laughs> the yeah, providers yeah. don't want to put it on there, for example. Uh, so I think that the, the patient component in risk adjustment is also a really important thing in terms of their awareness and kind of even engaging them in, in some of the 
conversations mm-hmm. because it's a lot more. If, if if somebody tried to talk to me about what's wrong with my car, I don't I don't even know what they're talking about. And I think that's kind of how medical procedures can can come off to a patient. But from a compliance point of view, what's really concerning is uh, setting risk score targets and saying, you know, and focusing so much on the risk score. One of the things that is important to know is that CMS every year recalibrates recalibrates the risk score so that it's a 1.0 average across the entire Medicare population. So they can change the scoring and how that it how it works so that if you have a less than a 1.0 risk score, your patient population or your patient is healthier than average, and if you have more than a 1.0, then they're sicker than average, and they make sure that that average is 1.0. And so really trying to focus on it and gain gain a risk score is not going to really help anything because the more that that happens, CMS is just going to change the formula to keep it at a 1.0. And then larger the population that you're dealing with, the more it's going to go down to, you know, or go to a 1.0 average typically. I mean, you can use it as a directional type of a thing, but really setting a target or a goal of having a risk score is not going to, that's not really what it's about. What you really want to think about is the complete and accurate documentation of the health status of the patient. And so training providers and the folks in your organization to talk about risk score as a directional type of a thing and really start to focus the the language on um, really the disease burden of the patient panel, the complexity of the patient panel, making sure that that, that is what's being described so that it justifies the medical services that are being performed or the prescriptions that are being given to the patient. You know, I mean, it kind of goes hand in hand. Uh, and so that, that I think is the biggest area of risk in, in outpatient or is, is driving towards a risk score, setting risk score targets. Uh, and, and just in general, the language, there's, there's, the CDI language and proper querying is virtually unknown, and and the plans don't really have a big understanding of that because they're focused more on retrospective, which is education, and they can talk about misses and things like that, and and so making sure that you're not talking about that in a in a current you know, like there's really no such thing as a gap. In a, I mean, there's a quality gap or somebody's missed colonoscopy, but but just because somebody has a diagnosis, you can't call it a gap if, it, if it's not there. You say it maybe hasn't been documented or assessed yet, but mm-hmm. it, I mean, is it a gap? You know, just some of that language, being, being careful. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you. Thanks, Susan. Um, you know, I think we're about at the end of our interview portion here. So this was this was excellent. Really appreciate your time, Susan. Great great perspective from the payer side. Mm-hmm. I am going to bounce over to our um, to our poll question here, and we'll take a look to see how our audience answered. Uh, again, we asked our audience, "How would you describe your organization's relationship with its payers?" Um, so, fifty one percent don't know or not applicable. Our, that's our biggest bucket here. So folks uh, obviously maybe aren't as close to the payer side, especially in the inpatient side, which is understandable. Mm-hmm. Um, 12% do say good, uh, 26% neutral or mixed, and then 10% poor adversarial. 
So I don't know what you think here, Susan. Any surprises uh, from your perspective? No, I can say that when I went from the plan to the provider side, that it was really surprising to me that the boots on the ground people didn't really have that relationship with the payers. I mean, it makes sense now, but having been on the plan side, I was like, wow, that's it, the information isn't getting out there. So that was an eye opener for me. And I think that was, it's a good learning for people on the plan side too, you know, I mean, to be aware that the volume of what's happening with all of the patients, it, it makes it really hard to, to, get to the higher level when you're actually trying to do the boots on the ground work with, mm -hmm. with relationships with the providers. So yeah, that's not surprising to me. How about you, Dawn? Any thoughts here? Yeah, I, I agree with, with Susan there. You know, aside from the inpatient side, you don't really get that unless you're dealing with denial management, right? But on the outpatient side, I would think it would help to under, have a basic understanding of the different types of contracts that are out there and what it entails so that you could kind of take that information and implement it into your perspective or concurrent reviews if you're dealing with problem list or anything like that. At least you would have a better understanding. So I think it's good to have that, develop that relationship if you're in that position to have that exposure. Yep, absolutely. All right, let's bounce over to a quick in the news segment. Um, we've been talking a lot about value-based payment, so I figured I would share this with you all today. This is a piece from Healthcare Innovation covering a recent report issued by the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, the, the report is called A Roadmap for Value-Based Payment in 2030. So as always, I will include the link to this article uh, from Healthcare Innovation. Again, it's, a, it's really a summary of this white paper linked here, which um, you can find here. Um, it's kind of lengthy, 24 pages. Obviously, we're not going to cover this in five minutes, but um, I found it very interesting as a, a high-level introduction and history of where we are as a nation with value-based payment and really where we need to be. So there, there is some you know, real uh, straightforward and direct summary of, of where we are with value-based payment, uh, some critique of the, the, the progress we've made towards value-based payment, and really where we need to be to get to 2030 and to have a system that's integrated where hospitals are being rewarded for outcomes rather than, than, than volume. So um, just at a high level, there were some co-authors of this paper listed here, um, put a lot of work into this. They, they, these are lessons learned over the last decade of the value-based um, transition and includes five key recommendations, which include, for example, aligning alternative payment models or APMs across all publicly financed healthcare and, and giving health equity essential role in APM development. Um, they also recommend the CMS dramatically simplify the current value-based payment landscape. I like to see that because there are so many models out there that you can use. Um, they also recommend accelerating the movement from upside only shared savings to more of a risk-bearing population-based alternative payment models that put a little more skin in the game for, for, the, for providers. Uh, and not allowing them to opt out of value-based payment altogether, which is currently the model and, and where we are today. Um, they recommend that CMS must structure these incentives to push providers away from fee-for-service payment. 
So really a lot in this report to digest. Um, what I like about it is, is it is it does again give a great executive summary, uh, provide a history of the decade from volume to value and where we are and where we need to be. Uh, recommend checking that out. There are some, you know, if, for those that are more visual minded, there are some interesting tables they give in here in terms of the different categories of, of evolving towards a, a true value-based payment model. You can see here basic fee for service, physician professional fees, all the way to global capitated budgets and prospective bundle payments for chronic conditions. We've been talking a little bit about that today. And where we are as well by percentage, um, by commercial payers, Medicare Advantage, and an overall percentage of, of how much payments today are currently tied to these value-based um, population-based payments. So uh, any thoughts on this, uh, Susan, from your perspective, this report, or just the, the nation's shift in this direction in general and where, where we might need to be? Uh, no, I think this is a great place to really start to, to learn and understand the bigger picture because it does help to kind of inform, you know, I mean, it's changing. It's here and it's changing. And, and so understanding it is, is uh, to me, is not just a nice to do. It's a it's a really need to do at this point for for all of us who are involved in coding and documentation integrity. Mm -hmm. How about you, Don? Any thoughts on this report, or maybe some? Well, I would to agree do with the, that. I alluded. To, yeah, exactly. I alluded to that earlier, but I think you know the value based programs. We need to understand how they work, but it's got to be an improved clinical experience for providers, patients, you know, I've seen a lot of great programs that are out there in some provider settings where they're really focused on the buy-in from the patient for that non-compliance part that is a big wrench to the whole concept. You know, if the, if the patient's not compliant, you can't really get that far um, with, you know, your goals. So understanding the big picture, I agree with Susan. I think it's going to be very paramount to the world of CDI. We're already seeing that on the inpatient side as far as, you know, risk adjustment, mortality measures, things like that. But on the outpatient side, I think CDI is probably going to shift in their role of becoming more integrated in that and, and learning how to optimize their skill set to get to the same end result, those goals. Mm -hmm. We'll have to wait and see what all they say. It, it could go a million different ways. You know, there's a lot out there on this. It's a big subject. Yeah, I, I believe the profession is headed this way, but uh, there is still a long ways to go. Okay, just to wrap up briefly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, wrap up briefly. Um, if you haven't seen, we are hosting our Actus National Conference October 25th through 28th at the Sheraton Hotel in Dallas, Texas. Keep an eye out for this. We're going to be publicizing it a lot more, but we are planning a, a return to live in-person conferencing uh, in, in Q3 in the, in the fall. A little bit different schedule for us. As you know, the Actus Conference is typically in May, but with the pandemic and all the other wonders that have been 2020 and 2021, we're, we are moving our program to October at the Sheraton Hotel in Dallas, Texas. So we hope you can join us. All right, that is going to do it for today's edition of the Actus Podcast. We're going to see you back here again in two weeks for our next show, which is CDI's role in readmissions, the HRR.
HRP or Hospital Readmissions Reduction Program Impact. That's a mouthful. Um, as a reminder to our guests, you can listen to the show anytime via our website or Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. We make the recording typically available either the day after or at the latest, the Friday following the live show today. Again, I want to thank Susan for coming on and sharing her expertise and uh, from the payer side. It was wonderful to have you on, Susan. Um, so thank you again. And as, Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. For our uh, listeners, as always, if you have suggestions for future guests, ideas about the format of the show, send me an email at bmurphy at actus.org. I'd love to hear from you. Take care, everyone. <laughs>